Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Rebecca Robbins, weathering the pandemic in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Adam Feuerstein is off today. It's Thursday, July 2nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, the first drug shown to have an effect on COVID-19 finally has a price tag. We'll discuss all the implications of the cost of Gilead Sciences' remdesivir. Next, our stat colleague Matt Herper will join us to break down the latest news in the world of COVID-19 vaccine development. Finally, we'll talk about a new use for AI, nudging clinicians to broach delicate conversations with seriously ill patients about their end-of-life goals and wishes. But first, a word from our sponsor. Alnylam Pharmaceuticals has led the translation of the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNA interference into an innovative new class of medicines. RNAi therapeutics treat disease differently than other types of medicines by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Our pioneering work has delivered the world's first and only approved RNAi therapeutics, and we're just getting started. Learn more about how our science is changing the way medicine treats disease at alnylam.com slash stat. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash stat. For the past few months, we, like what feels like the rest of the world, have pondered the following question. How much will Gilead Sciences charge for remdesivir? That, of course, is the first drug shown to have an effect on COVID-19. And this week we got an answer. A five-day course of remdesivir will cost $2,340 for governments in the developed world and $3,120 for insurers in the U.S., which includes Medicare and Medicaid. So that news has sparked quite a few reactions from lawmakers, public health advocates, and Wall Street analysts. But let's start with the price itself. Damien, how did Gilead arrive at that number? So according to the company, they dug through the numbers on just how much it costs to care for a patient who's been hospitalized with COVID-19. So reducing the length of a hospital stay by about four days, as remdesivir has been shown to do, would save roughly $12,000 per patient, according to Gilead. And so by that metric, Gilead claims that the price of remdesivir is considerably below the value that it provides to society. And part of their claim there is that drug prices are often set not just upon you know how much money they save in hospital care, but also down-the-line costs, returning people to work, uh, you know, estimates of societal benefit. And so in Gilead's mind, they're offering a steep discount to what remdesivir is actually worth. And how did the price compare with what people were expecting? So as with anything with drug pricing, it depends on whom you ask. ICER, which is the nonprofit group that studies cost-effectiveness for medicines, described Gilead's choice as, as responsible in terms of pricing. And the price definitely came in below the expectations of a lot of Wall Street analysts who had thought that you know, some number closer to $12,000 or at least above $5,000 for a course of treatment uh, was more likely. But at the same time, some lawmakers saw Gilead's prices egregiously high. Senator Bernie Sanders, for example, pointed out that Gilead had received substantial federal funding to develop remdesivir, including an NIH-sponsored clinical trial that really established the evidence that supports the drug's efficacy. And so he looks at Gilead's price as, quote, price gouging off of it during a pandemic. So in the lead up to Gilead announcing the price, there was a pretty fair amount of anxiety on Wall Street about what kind of precedent the company might set. Basically, the whole trillion-dollar drug industry is based on companies charging whatever the market will bear for a given treatment. And Gilead was saying over and over that, you know, it wasn't looking at remdesivir as a commercial opportunity. 
And that led analysts to worry that the company would basically undercharge for the drug and then set into motion some domino effect that would erode the whole industry's ability to be profitable. Does that idea seem plausible to you, Damien? I was a little skeptical at the outset, but one thing that I found fascinating was that the line from Wall Street analysts on Gilead's most recent earnings call was basically, okay, so the company has delivered incredible returns on medicines for hepatitis C and for HIV uh, and for influenza. Why should COVID-19 be any different? And what was interesting about that is it was the same point made by drug pricing activists and critics of Gilead to imply the exact opposite thing, which is to say, if you're willing to charge less for COVID-19, what makes it okay for you to charge so much for treatments for HIV, hepatitis C, etc.? And so it did seem like we were moving into this moment where remdesivir could be an inflection point for a lot of the debates we have about drug pricing. But what I would say now that we have the price is that it kind of seems like a big lead up to nothing. Um, Gilead seems like it's going to make a profit on this. If you look at Wall Street consensus on how valuable remdesivir might be, the median basically of projections is that the drug will be worth about $2 billion a year each year for the next few years. And, you know, some analysts have it as much as $4 billion or even $8 billion into its peak. So this appears to be an incredibly lucrative opportunity for Gilead Sciences. You could argue that the lesson from this might be that it's plenty profitable to charge less than what the market will bear to set your prices based on, you know, this kind of reduced valuation metric that we mentioned Gilead was using, rather than going the standard approach, because this medicine as a result of its price is likely to reach a lot more people than it would have if it were more expensive. So I think it's kind of a work in progress, but I wouldn't hold my breath for some sort of sea change in how the drug industry works. I suppose it's not too surprising that remdesivir will be bringing in, you know, roughly $2 billion in revenue for the next four years or more. But it is striking to think about the pandemic in the context of four years from now. I know this is a long pandemic, but 2024 feels like a long way off from now. And it's awful to think that, that people are going to, to be needing this drug so far out. For this next segment, we're going to talk about what has been a pretty busy last few days in the quest to develop a vaccine against the coronavirus. Our stat colleague Matt Herper has been closely following the vaccine race, and he joins us now to talk about it. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. So let's start with Wednesday morning's news. We got some of the first detailed clinical data on one of the many experimental COVID-19 vaccines in development. This one is from the drug giant Pfizer and the biotech firm BioNTech. So the readout showed that the experimental vaccine spurred immune responses in healthy patients, but also caused fever and other side effects, especially at the highest doses. So Matt, what did you make of these data? How big of a deal are they? Well, we have to be careful. It's early for any of these vaccines. And I guess the nightmare scenario here would be if antibody levels don't actually correlate um, to resistance or effectiveness of the vaccines. And the FDA made very clear in its new guidance that it wants clinical data showing that vaccines prevent infection before going into widespread use. But that said, this vaccine produced a really good dose of neutralizing antibodies, antibodies that appear to neutralize the virus, and a lot more of those neutralizing antibodies than you see in convalescent sera, in the blood of patients who've recovered. So that's a good sign that this vaccine could be effective. It's exactly what you'd want to see up to this point, but we need more tests. 
So yeah, I kind of wanted to drill down on the neutralizing antibody issue because that's become a lot of the topic in the minds of experts as they're trying to piece together what kind of efficacy these vaccines in development might have. But as you mentioned, in many ways, it's not clear exactly what these antibody levels are telling us. Could you kind of expand on that a little bit? Like, what what does it mean to have more antibodies in the blood than one sees with with patients who've recovered from COVID-19? Well, it should mean, the way most vaccines work, that you're getting a more effective immune response, but there are other parts to the immune response. There have been cases where vaccines created antibodies and weren't as protective, and this is the problem of just having to do large-scale trials. It's going to be interesting to see what the different antibody levels are for all these different vaccines. And it's good news that it's big, right? Like it's, it would be much worse if we were not seeing high antibody levels, but we shouldn't confuse that with certainty. So it's worth noting that these data come to us through an actual academic paper uploaded to a preprint server. The results are yet to be peer-reviewed, but we're looking at substantially more detail than we got from Moderna and Inovio Pharmaceuticals. Those are two companies that put out press releases on the early progress of their vaccines. Moderna and Inovio have promised to publish their detailed data in the near future. Matt, what kind of bar has Pfizer set for competing vaccines? Well, hopefully it's a bar that we get to see real data sooner. I mean, this has been a problem not only in vaccines, but... I mean, the most uh, important clinical trial so far in terms of conclusive results about COVID-19 has been the recovery trial out of the UK, which has given us three fairly definitive results that dexamethasone appears to save lives and that a pair of AIDS drugs and hydroxychloroquine don't seem to have any effect in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. We've only seen the dexamethasone paper published as a preprint. And and one of the problems is that we're used to science by press release in biotech, but it may not be the best way to do things in a pandemic. And Pfizer really did. They lay out, it's a great paper um, in terms of laying out what they did. And there's a nice clear graphic that shows the immune responses for the different doses. You can just stare at that thing and think about vaccines and how they're going to be dosed and what will the right dose of this vaccine be and form all sorts of opinions. And that's exactly what we want to be able to start getting lots of brains on the data. So moving on to another notable thing this week is the FDA released a guidance outlining what it wants to see from a potential COVID-19 vaccine before considering it for approval. And as you mentioned, the most notable thing was probably the requirement that any vaccine be at least 50% more effective than placebo in preventing infection, preventing COVID-19. What do you make of that threshold? I mean, the thing I thought when I saw it is I don't know if flu vaccines would make that threshold every year. It's a very reasonable threshold. It's a a pretty high threshold. It, It expects these vaccines to be at least reasonably effective. I think people aren't thinking enough about how different a vaccine that is 60% effective will be for changing the way we deal with COVID-19 compared to a vaccine that's 90% effective. And it's one of my big questions about all these vaccines is is how effective will they all be and will it vary? It's a very different world where a vaccine completely prevents you from having to worry about the virus and where it either makes infections less severe, which is a possibility, or reduces the number of people who get infected, which is, you know, sort of like a mask that we're thinking about yet, but a mask that everyone's always wearing. Um, Obviously, a more effective vaccine would be better. 
So assuming the FDA stays true to its word in requiring vaccine developers to actually demonstrate protection before winning approval, what does that mean for the timeline for a widely available vaccine? Well, I'm not sure. Emergency use authorizations have much lower bars than actual approvals. So we we have to keep that in mind. Pfizer's been saying that they think they may have data as early as October. Moderna's been talking Thanksgiving. I think we should view all these timelines as relatively fuzzy. Um, If we're very lucky, we might have data by the end of the year and then how the FDA will handle that is going to be a big question. I mean, another big question is going to be, even if something is approved, how many doses can be made and how fast can they be distributed? How fast can you actually get shots in people's arms? Uh, None of that's going to be instant. Yeah, In our best case scenario, we start running these phase three trials and the vaccines are really effective. And that makes the trials faster because it's easier to show a result for an effective vaccine than a not effective vaccine. And we have one or more of these pretty quickly, but it's it's very tough to game. I think people are thinking of this much too much as a race. It feels much more to me like you're watching Saving Private Ryan and you're watching everybody storm the beach. And everybody's running kind of at the same speed. There's not actually a lot of difference and you're you're not really worried so much about who gets there first as who makes it. Uh, and, and that's more how I think of all these vaccines being developed. So with that in mind, now that we have this data from Pfizer and BioNTech to chew over, what are you looking out for next in the coronavirus vaccine development space? Well, I think we all really want to hear about the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. We'll be getting results in that very soon. Because of this horse race approach and wanting something now, I think people aren't paying enough attention to some of the other programs. I always think the Sanofi-Glaxo effort is interesting because it's the only one that actually is based on a technology that's used in an approved vaccine. The J&J effort and the Merck, the two Merck vaccines are also really interesting, and I think we're all pretty eager to get data on any of them. You know, we need to start thinking about how we're going to decide who gets these, and maybe it'll be time to start talking about pricing um, even before the vaccines are out. I mean, we've seen with with remdesivir that that can be a, a relatively difficult continuing conversation for people to have, and it probably helps to start earlier. Matt, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next up, we're going to talk about a new way that artificial intelligence is being used in the clinic. Increasingly over the past few years, hospitals and clinics have started using AI models for things like predicting which patients will develop sepsis, which ones are healthy enough to be discharged, and which ones are likely to be readmitted soon. Now, algorithms are being tapped in the deeply sensitive realm of -of end-of-life care. Stanford, the University of Pennsylvania, and a handful of community oncology practices around the country are starting to use these models to identify patients who may be approaching their final days. And then the idea is to nudge clinicians to broach conversations with these patients about their goals, their values, and their wishes for their care. So Rebecca, you just published a big story about this intersection of machines and humans. And I was wondering, what's the rationale for why AI is being introduced here? Yeah, so the idea here is to trigger really important conversations that might otherwise have happened either too late or or not at all had an AI model uh, not been used. And 
there's a real need for that. Uh, people I interviewed for the story told me because doctors have historically been stretched way too thin and, and not had the training to prioritize talking with uh, patients that need it about their end of life goals. And I think another uh, point here is that to the extent that these conversations do happen in the absence of AI, uh, they're often not done in a, in a systematic way. You know, hospitals and clinics will kind of use an ad hoc system to identify patients who would be a good candidate for one of these conversations. And that means that only some of the patients who uh, could benefit from a conversation like that get identified. Uh, so I think it, this was described to me as, as having real potential to make identifying uh, people who could benefit more systematic. So how do these AI systems work in practice to identify these people? Yeah, so they're generally built around data that's stored in electronic health records. So uh, the models are trained and tested on thousands of data points from patients who've been treated before. So that's things like their diagnoses, their medications, uh, whether they deteriorated and, and ended up passing away. So once these models are, are built and ready to go, they sift through current patients' medical records and make a prediction about whether that patient is at elevated risk of, of dying in the coming weeks or months. And just like how Google decides which results to put on the first page of a search, these models kind of rely on different thresholds to determine who to flag as high risk. And so once they've kind of identified certain patients as, as high risk of dying, they send notifications, whether that's by email or um, by text message to frontline clinicians. And then the, the clinician has to decide whether they want to broach a conversation with these identified patients, and if so, how to do that. So what are some of the practical challenges involved in actually bringing this technology to use in real life? So clinicians I talk to on the front lines uh, say they have to make a lot of uh, clinical judgments, which is good. We certainly don't want a machine totally replacing a, a doctor or a clinician's judgment and, and what they can bring to a really tough and, and important conversation like that. So clinicians told me that they are trying to figure out how to balance their own judgments of how a patient is doing and, and what they need with the AI's predictions. Um, and that's important because the AI predictions can be spotty when it comes to identifying who's actually going to end up dying. Some of the clinicians I talked to said sometimes they were surprised by which ones of their patients uh, the algorithm decides to flag, and on the flip side, who the algorithm sometimes doesn't flag. And sometimes the clinicians have to decide whether to override the algorithm's judgment. So how do patients feel about the idea of basically a robot telling them when it's time to consider their own mortality? So that's a good question and one I was really curious to hear, but it's hard to know because patients are generally not being told that these algorithms are being used um, to inform whether or not their clinician broaches a conversation with them. I was pretty surprised to hear that because, you know, it just seemed like Typically, when an intervention or, or software is involved in a patient's care, it gets mentioned. Um, but clinicians I spoke with told me that they had really good reasons for not uh, bringing this up with patients. They didn't want to derail the conversation and, and you know, make it all about sort of how a, a robot or a machine had come to these conclusions. They wanted to focus on things that mattered and that were actually actionable for patients. They also were worried about 
sharing a prediction that might not be accurate enough um, to be useful or meaningful and would just frighten a patient. I did want to know what patients thought in in kind of the hypothetical, though. So I spoke with uh, several patients with uh, metastatic cancer who, in their care, had had conversations like this with clinicians, although they weren't prompted by AI at the time. And so I asked them, you know, looking back on that experience where you were talking with uh, your clinician about end-of-life care, would you have wanted such an algorithm to have been used to prompt that discussion? And the patients I spoke with said basically the same thing, that they would have wanted an algorithm to be used, but they wouldn't have wanted to know about it. They likened that to not wanting to know about their prognosis, not wanting to know the percentage of patients with their disease who were still alive after five years. And I thought that was uh, really interesting to hear. So based on your reporting, do you think that these systems are going to be adopted more widely? So I think it's really going to depend on the the data that's um, being generated in these early rollouts. The systems, as I mentioned before, can be inaccurate. Uh, They sometimes flag patients who don't end up dying or miss patients who do. Um, So there are definitely questions about whether these models are accurate enough to be useful. Uh, But at the same time, the early data indicates that these models might actually be useful in changing outcomes. Um, So that could be more conversations about end-of-life care, um, more palliative care consults, um, or more referrals to um, hospice or to other palliative care treatments. So I think there's real potential here uh, to spur better care. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado and Teresa Gaffney, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which areas of COVID-19 vaccine and drug development you're watching most closely. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. Have a great 4th of July weekend, stay safe, and see you next week.